Welcome back to Liminal Frames. This is episode nine of the show. Nine feels like a good number. I've had a good week. XO, how has your week been? Well, my week's been good, but there's a lot going on in my life right now. And um, some exciting things I'll be able to talk about more in the future. But uh, happy to step in and uh, join you on this episode. Nice. All right. Well, I already know that you're a future human, so uh, hopefully it's something. Oh, it's out. Exposed. <laughs> Secret is out of the bag. Hey, I really enjoyed your most recent episode on uh, Point of Convergence on the Breakaway Civilization. Hopefully we can talk about that at some point, uh, either on this episode or down the road. Uh, but today we are going to get into what I guess we're calling or we've talked about calling uh, civil disagreement or on discourse and disagreement. Um, this is a pretty topical uh, sort of discussion because, as I think folks know, uh, our social media spaces, our current climate in in the world is uh, you know pretty polarized. There's a lot of you know high, you know passions are high, and when it comes to beliefs and uh, and we we often sort of find ourselves uh, on opposite sides of of a perspective, and the way in which we engage with each other, either in person uh, or in, in our social media spaces, you know, is very much, uh, I think, changing. I think it's hard to argue that uh, it, it, we have not been influenced by these technologies. We have not been influenced by uh, just the things that are happening in our world today with uh, the, the pandemic and, uh, you know, climate change and, and civil unrest and, and you know, the war in Ukraine, there's, there are a lot of things going on. And, you know, of course there are things happening at every moment in history, but, uh, for whatever reason, I think maybe because of our hyper connectivity, uh, the things that are happening right now feel a lot more, uh, salient and personal and, and that kind of keeps us on edge. Um, also in recent news, we, if anybody who's been in the Twitter sphere, has been paying attention. You know that uh, Elon Musk has uh, has offered to buy Twitter, and it sounds like they've accepted that proposal. And Elon is a I know him in and of himself. He's a polarizing figure, uh, but he's made it very clear that what he wants to try to do with Twitter is make it a space that is more pro free speech, uh, and that has been interpreted. Uh, from uh, both sides of kind of the political aisle in different ways. Some people are, uh, you know, heading for the exits uh, from Twitter. Others are coming back uh, to Twitter. Uh, you know, it's definitely impacting the, uh, the feel. Um, and I've seen folks even on both sides of the aisle here also, you know, kind of champion this move and think that it could be a net positive. So, uh, but at the end of the day, it, it does feed into this topic generally. And that's, you know, how do we, uh, kind of engage in a discussion that can lead to a meaningful conversation? How do we engage when we disagree with one another? How do we uh, do that in a way that can be uh, uh, productive uh, and not counterproductive? So XO, I know that's quite a lot to sort of set the table, but uh, what's your take on the sort of way in which we engage with each other today, uh, in particular when we don't happen to agree? Right. Well, I wrote down 37 points you made, so I'll make sure I, I put those in each one. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yes, it's a, that's, that's a very loaded question. Um, the, the, 
the thing with Elon Musk is is just a fascinating historic moment in so many ways. There's there's so many you know implications, ramifications of that. Some people point to the fact that you know a very short list of billionaires now own huge amounts of our media, right? Newspapers, uh, online platforms, uh, etc. TV networks. And that in, in itself is somewhat concerning, even if you're, whether you're pro Elon Musk or not in terms of the free speech versus more control over what's said, uh, it, it's still somewhat concerning that, you know, four or five guys, which is pretty much what it is, based on their preferences can shape the nature of our media spectrum entirely for everyone else, right? That's, that's just concerning in itself. Even if one of them happens to champion your particular perspective, Surely all of us should be concerned of that kind of oligarchical kind of, you know, setup. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think about that. Um, I think about how, you know, in the, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even, you know, you, you had your Walter Cronkites of the world. Everyone tuned into one or two or three or four TV networks. And that became the sum total of how information was released and how people consumed information and media and just to, to, to a great degree, their understanding of what was going on in the world and what reality was, right? And then we had, you know, cable television and then the internet. And now we have a situation where we have this polarization and culture wars where people don't just listen to the same media and draw different conclusions. They consume completely different media and therefore exposed to completely different media set or data sets about what's even happening. Um, and they tend to, you get this kind of um, compounding uh, echo effect, echo chamber effect, where you're only talking to people who already agree with you. Uh, and so, and, and that tends to further polarize everything, for instance, in our country. And to the point where not only do you see the other political party, for instance, as not being, uh, not holding the, the right beliefs about a political persuasion, but you suddenly identify them with everything dark and demonic and sexually perverse. Like you just, you make them the Darth Vader, you know, of the world mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, partly because just, you know, from a, from a sheer psychological point of view, it makes you feel better about yourself. If you can make, you know, you feel like Sky, Luke Skywalker, if you make the other Darth Vader. Right. Uh, and that mm -hmm. happens on, on both sides, uh, to be quite frank, as you like to say. Um, so it is a very, very complex situation when you then get into a situation where, and this you know, relates to Elon Musk stepping in because you've got these media platforms like Twitter that, are, that have effectively become the town square, right? Where we, we, we voice opinions. And so this balance between free speech versus protecting vulnerable communities is sort of like at the the heat of this right and 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 um and even people who claim they are for free speech often what they're really saying is i want my particular free speech to be out there and they're they're very comfortable mm -hmm. quashing somebody else's free speech and again i see that on both sides of the equation so there's even a lack of like consistency logical c consistency and self-awareness going on uh, on mass levels it's it's a conundrum, and um, and when a private media platform suddenly feels like it, it's its job to be the moral police for the entire society, on the one hand, I understand why they feel that need, 
because what's said on their platform can impact elections and everything else. At the same time, is that really their role? And if it's not their role, whose role is it? You know, these are these are really uh, fascinating and complex questions, and I'm looking forward to us uh, unwinding a bit tonight. Definitely. Well, you know, what I find interesting about this too is that when you talk about the the climate now, it's not uncommon in conversation, even with a stranger, for you to quickly get to a place where you're both saying something is wrong here. You know, something just doesn't seem right. Uh, the way that the, you know, the, there's a lot of animosity in, in our social media um, and in our media generally. Um, people seem to be aware on on some you know sort of cognitive level that 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 this isn't really a representation of how dialogue truly is with another person that it's like a characterized uh, caricaturized version of uh, of dialogue so it's like we all on an individual basis i think acknowledge and can readily see there's a problem here with the way that it manifests on these platforms, but we seemingly, uh, you know, lack the collective power uh, to sort of effectuate something that would would be a meaningful change, uh, influencing the the needle to something that would be, you know, kind of more uh, friendly or or productive. Um, and I recognize too that there are, just as you pointed out, there are a lot of power dynamics here. You know, so it's um, it's not necessarily true that the majority is right. You know, <laughs> the, the majority. Uh, in fact, we have lots of instances in history when majorities in certain uh, societies uh, have really been, you know, kind of wrong uh, in in various ways uh, when it comes to their marginalization of. Uh, minorities or persecution of minorities, you know, I think we would objectively look at that and say that's that wasn't okay. Uh, so, you know, creating platforms that really just sort of uh, elevate a majority consensus opinion isn't necessarily, uh, you know, the best thing. And, and these are questions that I think technology companies are also not necessarily well equipped to answer. You know, they're they're not in the business of uh, trying to uh, you know, sort of run societies or, or, you know, speak on behalf of, of states interacting with other states and state power, you know, they're in the, they're in the free marketplace, uh, of ideas and they're just kind of in the business of making money. So their, their, their operational incentives are really quite different, or at least in some ways different, uh, than our governments. Um, and so we're kind of placing upon them this burden, of having to figure this out on the fly, uh, and preserve, you know, at least in the U S you know, preserve our Republic, uh, you know, if, if we feel that, that that Republic is under threat. And then there are those that would say, you know, maybe it needs to be right. Maybe we need to, uh, you know, kind of let these sort of things play out as they, as they will and let, let the sort of chips fall where they may. Um, I, I don't know. There's, there doesn't seem to be like any ready, easy answers here, whether you think Elon Musk is, you know, a great guy or not. It certainly seems like a smart guy. Um, but I don't think, you know, Elon has uh, a silver bullet here to solve this problem. Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> by the way, as a quick aside, uh, based on our, our usual topic of the UFO phenomenon, which we'll move to in a minute, 
I've actually heard people somewhat only half jokingly say they wonder if Elon Musk is actually is actually an alien, perhaps a reptilian. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it is interesting. And like you touched on with the with the media platforms thing, in many ways, it's living in an environment that has superseded the nation state structure, right? Uh, so we still have nation states, but when you have actors within certain countries trying to manipulate the with bots and whatnot, the election process in another country. And they're not necessarily even, you know, official state actors, but they're still tied to a certain nation state often and a certain uh, worldview. Uh, it becomes very, very complex. And then, uh, you know, because then who, who's the karma police for who? Um, mm. Very complex question. Um, yeah. And I, like you say, I don't think there's any easy answers. Like we're definitely not here to say, okay, we've got, you know, Exo and Nathan have our five-step plan for how we can fix this tonight. Because <laughs> it's, it's, there's there are no simple answers. And if there's one thing I would really want to, you know, impress upon people is that whenever you try and salvage one kind of value or ideal, you often have to sacrifice another, at least to some degree. Like there's always a trade-off, you know. So so free speech versus protecting people that is a complex equation, and there are no simple answers that. I, I resist mm-hmm. the notion that, you know, you, there, there is one. There, I just don't think there is. You, there, you have to give and take in that. And there are major implications in the negative if you skew too far on either side of that equation. So it's, it's this ongoing wrestling we're just going to have to do as a culture and in real time. Yes, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's a mature position to take that, that rules are helpful, but not necessarily uh, you know, sort of always set in stone, you know, they can't be so rigid that they can't adapt or flex to, you know, other imperatives that arise. Um, but, you know, coming back to you know, something you touched on a second ago, I mean, why, why is this important for us to tackle this topic? You know, so like why, you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations and I think those of us, th- those of you who've listened to our show, uh, or, you know, any of our content separately, probably see a lot of, uh, commonality between the two of us. We're not exactly, you know, meeting up and kind of duking it out, uh, <laughs> in terms of our, our perspectives, but what, so why is, uh, th- this, this topic of, you know, kind of disagreement or, uh, you know, navigating di- disagreement, why is this important, uh, to us? Yeah, good question. And I'm reminded of a political show that was on in the past, might have been the 90s or the 2000s called Crossfire. And that's exactly what it was. It was like just basically enemies, like, you know, (laughs) attacking each other for like 30 minutes. Um, Well, I think um, this this topic, uh, number one, we always talk about nuance. I don't think you'll ever hear a show where we don't mention that word. Um, And I think we we both, because we've been through transitions of our own worldviews where we actually see the world and reality differently than our former selves. Uh, we, it makes you more wary of really concretized perspectives. Um, I think you, you get to a point where you hold even the, your current view, you hold much more lightly, you know, you take it seriously, but you hold it lightly and you're, you sort of develop the inclination to look for outlier data that might question your current perspective. Because if it's been hap- happened to you before, chances are it'll happen again, right? Um, and in this particular uh, field, you know, the UFO phenomenon and paranormality, which is you know our our mainstay, 
you know, conspiracy theories are everywhere, right? And we are in a field where, um, on the one hand, you've got some pretty outlandish claims that on the face of it sound almost preposterous. On the other hand, I think if you've been in this field for any period of time, you see clear evidence of historic government, not only cover-ups, but um, oppression, repression of people who tried to resist that cover-up, even potentially, uh, you know, assassination of people, um, ruining people definitely, based on their desire to try and expose the truth. Uh, so, it, it, and, and, you know, this, uh, this topic is related to many other cons- conspiracies too. In other words, just demographically, uh, this is not a value statement. I'm just saying when you look at the statistics, the people who are interested in the phenomenon skew towards conspiracy theories in general, right? Whether it's 9-11 being an inside job or the uh, Kennedy assassination or the secret space, you know, uh, force kind of thing. Um, all of these are associated with ufology on the one hand, because um, again, I think once you sort of like you mentioned that phrase, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Uh, you, that's the sort of the perspective you take, but at the same time, you don't want to start seeing a demon behind every bush to use another, you know, analogy of a phrase. In other words, Mm. just because one conspiracy theory has been proven to be true, doesn't mean you should just write a blank check and say that every conspiracy theory you ever come across, therefore must also be true. But admittedly to, to try and have a critical eye to, and that doesn't mean negative. It just means really be willing to delve into the evidence, you know, and and see what actually supports one position or another um, is challenging. And I think people sometimes experience intellectual fatigue because they just don't know what to believe anymore, right? Like when you've, even for experiencers, you know, you've been brought up to believe one thing about reality and then suddenly gray aliens show up at the end of your bed. And even for a guy like, you know, Jim Semivan, who worked for the CIA, it happens to a guy like that, right? And, and what does that do for not just the question of aliens and what they are and what they're doing here, but everything about reality is suddenly in play. And, and so I think those of us who really delve into this um, inevitably end up asking questions, really open questions about a lot of topics. And that just sort of par for the course. Definitely. Well, I find it interesting. So I can understand why if you've had an experience, a direct experience of something strange that you would really exhibit a strong degree of conviction about that. You know, I, I've seen something, don't tell me what I've seen. I know what I've seen and this is what it means. You know, so I, I can really understand a strong opinion in that situation. What I think I have a harder time understanding is folks who have incredibly strong opinions about, you know, sort of topics or conspiracies that there isn't necessarily a lot of clear data that you could point to and say, look, you know, he, here it is to sort of back up whatever it is that they're saying. But so many are just heavily invested uh, in, in particular positions uh, to the exclusion and sometimes the almost violent exclusion of, of other viewpoints on, on the topic, even viewpoints that might happen to have similar perspective, just not the same. You know, so I, I, I've always struggled with, with that. And I, I kind of, I, for me, it's like trying to understand the sort of uh, motivations or the personality traits that, that, that contribute to that type of behavior. 
Um, so I definitely would like to get your thoughts on that. Uh, you know, what's going on there? You know, like why that heavy investment and something that just doesn't seem to be, you know, very clear cut. Yeah, it's a good question. And, um, there's definitely, you know, a lot of evidence for cognitive bias everywhere you look. Um, I think part of it comes down to people want, people want answers, right? People don't like ambiguity. They don't like, um, well, when the, the evidence right now looks, you know, like 52% one way, 48% another way, right? That just, that, that's really not just does it lack resolution, but it creates cognitive dissonance. Like it just doesn't feel good to, uh, mm. for that to be the case. And when you think about the human brain and even how, we, when we see optical illusions, even sometimes when we know it's an optical illusion, it's been demonstrated to us uh, that we can't argue with it. We still can't get our brain to see it as an optical illusion. It still looks like reality to us. <laughs> and it's almost like we've been hardwired from an evolutionary point of view. We have been hardwired from an evolutionary point of view to come down in blacks and whites, right? Partly because that was an evolutionary trait to keep us alive. You, When the lion's coming, you can't sit there pondering the ambiguity of what it is, right? You just got to make, uh, make a move. And if you're wrong, well, at least you're alive, right? But if you, you think too hard about it, you know, uh, then you're dead. So that's part of our evolutionary history. So when we have these really complex topics now, I think it goes against the grain of our evolution to some degree to just sort of uh, step back, take the 30,000 foot view and, and just say, I'm on pause and gathering data until there is more clarity. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's probably the the thing that frustrates me the most about this field. And we were talking about this before we went on the air, that even when I, on my podcast, state very clearly that I think we should resist the temptation to collapse multiple possibilities into one or, or two, like a binary option, right? I see mm -hmm. people doing it all the time. Sometimes in the very podcast I just said it, I'll get comments that <laughs> sound like they want to do that. So... Um, so that suggests to me that some people aren't even self-aware that they're doing it. And you can literally say it to them and it goes in one ear and out the other, and they just don't know how to practice it. Now, part of it maybe is our academic background. Like I remember even in psychology, you know, we were taught that, um, you know, when you see a study that, you know, or even Mark Twain, right, said that there's a, there's three kinds of lies, right? There's lies, damn lies, and statistics, right? And the point there is that just because someone shows you statistics doesn't mean you should take it as the gospel truth, right? Because who's funding the study? What were the uh, what were the what kind of protocols were there there to make sure it was uh, you know a fair and blind study, right? So, and if you know if for instance the tobacco industry is authoring a study and paying for it on the damaging nature of nicotine, you might right away say there's a strong possibility here that they have a preferred conclusion, right? Those kind of things. So I think we should absolutely do that with the UFO phenomenon and paranormality. Uh, we should say, who's saying this? Not just what are they saying, but who who's saying it and what's their background and and why, they, why might they not only consciously skew one way, but maybe even unconsciously skew one way where they're not necessarily deliberately lying or deceiving themselves or deceiving you, but they just haven't developed the capacity to, to look with, um, with really discerning critical vision at data and be aware of their own tendency to, to prefer one 
uh, hypothesis or conclusion over another. I think too, like arriving at a place where you could go through those motions and uh, sort of put yourselves in the shoes of that person and say, you know, based on what I know about them, uh, I understand how they arrived at that conclusion. I understand why they hold that perspective. I disagree with that, but I understand it. You know, I understand that. I know that sometimes that that can sound a little bit condescending, like, well, if you only understood it like I did, then you'd have a different perspective. That's not really what I'm getting at. I think it's just more so saying it's this recognition that we all live in a kind of a, a state of flux in, in, in our various sort of uh, narrative realities. You know, the, 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 we, we like to sort of paint this picture that there might be this kind of objective truth it's just sort of sitting there like a box in a room and we can all look at it and it's, you know, there's the box, that's the truth. But and I think it's closer to true that, that it depends on where you are in the room, what it is that you're seeing. Um, and, you know, just acknowledging that fact that you, you know, that person may be at, at another side of the room and may have a different perspective on it. And it may also be okay. It may, it may be in some ways correct uh, from their vantage point. Uh, and what is the value and utility of that? It's funny that you brought up illusions because uh, I was actually, I meant to put that in the show notes. Yes, folks, we do have show notes uh, that we don't necessarily follow, but I meant to put that in the notes. And so I'm glad that you brought it up. So thank you. But we were, uh, the family uh, and I, we took a trip recently and there was uh, this uh, sort of, uh, they called it the Museum of Illusions. And Immediately going inside that place have all these different types of illusions that you can see. And it very quickly uh, confirmed for me that there's very little that we, we can trust uh, in our own sort of perceptual experience, you know, that we are just so easily duped by what it is that is, you know, coming at us. Um, and so that ties into, of course, a ton of things that I think we've talked about and will continue to talk about in terms of what is true and how we, you know, verify what is true. Um, but I thought that was, uh, in a little bit of a synchronicity that you brought that up. Um, because it is, it is complicated. It is multifaceted in some ways to me, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's strange that we live in a time that, uh, allows us to have this understanding that this level of complex understanding that, that we can be easily duped, uh, that we have access to all this different, different information. You know, you did just mention, you know, like who funded the study and like, these are questions that not every generation that which preceded us actually asked or even was aware of. So we have, we live at a time where I think our awareness of this is, uh, is kind of better than it's ever been. And you would think that that would cause us to be more understanding of one another, but it actually doesn't seem to be the case at all. You know, it seems to contribute to uh, a lot of tribalism and, you know, kind of the, this retreating to our corners and saying, well, I, you know, I know you're on that side of the box, but I'm over here and I really like it over here. Over here is the best place to be. And from where I'm standing, that's not a box. It, it's a triangle, you know, and, and that I'm going to, I don't want to hear from anybody that tells me otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, <clears throat> it is complex, and um, like you say, it's one thing to to know something even statistically, but to actually manage to change your behavior based on that knowledge is another thing entirely. 
It is interesting that for the first time in history, like you say, we we know many things about our our evolutionary background and how that skews our ability to perceive reality correctly. And you know, we've talked before about Donald Hoffman's work, uh, where he's demonstrated, you know, pretty uh, convincingly um, that even through mathematical proofs and whatnot, that almost certainly what we perceive is more like a desktop interface rather than the actual perception of what reality really is or what's really out there. And again, that was a, an evolutionary um, move made to keep us alive, to show us just enough, a close approximation of only the most important elements of what's out there so that we would survive to you know, propagate the species and such. So we have all sorts of evidence like we've never had before to tell ourselves that what we see, how we perceive uh, is, I mean, we already knew like in terms of the bandwidth, right? And, and how much we visually perceive and things like that. It's so narrow compared to what actually exists, right? And, and when you get into the, into the infrared, you see all sorts of things that we don't usually perceive. But we're talking about much more than that. We're saying that even those, you know, these great devices we come up with, more and more powerful telescopes, more and more powerful microscopes. Mm -hmm. The more we look at the quantum level and things break apart to the idea that they become more like probabilities waves rather than physical things, right? We have less and less confidence even that reality is real in many ways. You know, like, uh, in other words, the question goes uh, to the deepest levels. And, you know, uh, unless you're Monty Python saying, you know, it's turtles all the way down, man, that's the answer. Uh, you know, th there, there is no simple answer. And so in the midst of this really compelling question about the UFO phenomenon, these others who apparently are in our midst and are interacting with us and their presence seems to be ramping up in the midst of all that. And those questions we have coincidingly vast questions about what what reality is, who we are, you know, the, the mm -hmm. biggest questions of all. And so, um, and when people, you know, are trying to live their lives and, you know, make their way through the world in the few decades that we're here, uh, not that many people have the luxury to step back and consider these really, really big questions. And so they tend to go down one track and that kind of the second you take that track, that limits the possibilities and that sort of feeds the, um, you know, the conflict with other groups who've taken a different track. And I like what you said about, you know, it's not about being right or wrong. Sometimes it's about just literally seeing something from different perspectives. And I've used this word before, multi-perspectival. Like part of my integral, integral background has taught me that it's not about which group has the right view. It's what is right about each group and how can we synthesize a much more robust understanding that takes the best of all of those models and, and uh, truth models, right? Spiritual truth models mm -hmm. and what we've learned from science and uh, all of that. Because the frustrating thing with history is that we usually, when we come into a new understanding, partly in kind of like a shadow move, rejecting almost out of embarrassment who we used to be, who our ancestors used to be, we reject that entire uh, series of revelations that they lived under and adopt mm -hmm. the new one wholeheartedly and at first don't apply any of critical thinking to the new thing almost like a kind of penance. It's a really strange psychological move we make both as individuals and as a collective. But what I've learned is much more helpful is to recognize if large groups of people 
found truth in a certain perspective for long periods of time, there's probably something there. And as, as Ken Wilber likes to say, everybody's right. In other words, everybody's right to some degree. If it held sway for a period of time, whether it's shamanic culture or, you know, the Reformation or, you know, the Enlightenment or whatever, uh, there, there's probably something to it. How can we synthesize, build up a larger truth that takes the best of all of that? And I would love to see that happen more often around the UFO phenomenon and paranormality. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think it, I do not think it's coincidental that we, that these points are really converging right now, you know, that, that, as you mentioned, we've got this, uh, you know, more levels of free time more awareness of the ways in which we are integrated, the way that our uh, perceptions influence what we understand to be true or not true. It, it's not a coincidence that that time in our history is also coinciding with this the bigger questions of like what is happening with all of these experiences that have been reported in, in modern and in ancient history, uh, we're, we're reflecting on this. And as we reflect on that, it actually makes room and space for that to become in a sense more real, uh, than it had been like, in, in a way it's almost manifesting it. Um, and so, uh, you know, to kind of as we're pivoting to looking at the UFO and, uh, you know, high strangers specifically, um, with respect to disagreements and, and political disagreements, you know, I do find it particularly interesting that we are, are in a time where when when in, in the U.S. at least when when the right and the left are really looking for any excuse they can find to demean, devalue, attack, and belittle the other to gain political points, the one topic that they seem to be pretty consistently on the same page is UAP and trying to understand what this UAP stuff is. And I've, you know, I've heard the cynical argument on that is, you know, well, they realize that we're behind the curve somehow, that, that uh, drones you know, are everywhere and we've got to do something about it. And so to sort of save face, we're entertaining this notion of, you know, it could be some advanced, you know, alien species or something. Uh, and that allows us to kind of sidestep our uh, negligence and culpability and allowing the drone threat to become more prevalent. But Honestly, uh, I find that hard to believe a- as well, uh, because I, 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 as recently as a couple of weeks ago, I saw a Republican lawmaker absolutely just grill uh, the uh, Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, on C-SPAN over how we handled the Afghanistan withdrawal. So you can't tell me that we don't have some folks in, in some parties uh, and, and that was just one example. I'm sure that there are plenty in the le- on the left side that you know were grilling, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration for certain things that they did. We're not afraid to go after uh, incompetence if it's perceived uh, in our in our mi- military operations, because a lot of our military appointees are civilian. You know, they're 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 not necessarily uh, military members themselves. So. All that said, having a lot of agreement and, 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 and co-sponsorship of bills and efforts to understand what UAP actually are and in, improve and enhance our collection there, you know, to me, that says a lot about the, uh, the sort of validity of the subject itself. 
Um, and it's refreshing, quite frankly. Um, this is one area of our, you know, sort of society where we could actually agree. We, we could we, we could model how to come together and, and effectuate some positive change for our, for our people um, and hopefully kind of kickstart a new way of interacting with each other uh, in a more healthy way. Yeah, absolutely. When you're talking about that there, I was reminded of that that famous speech that Ronald Reagan gave where he said, if there's one thing that could end the Cold War and unite the human civilization, it would be an extraterrestrial threat. Uh, which again, when you think about it, it's all about changing perspective, right? Um, and I remember this, um, this situation where there was a high school teacher who was noticing a lot, and I think it was, they were teaching sociology or something like that. And they were noticing a lot of like cliqueiness kind of in, in their classroom, you know, like one group, the jocks mm-hmm. against the rockers, against the nerds or whatever. And um, so he, he wanted to demonstrate rather than a great teacher. So rather than, um, you know, trying to teach them about sociology, he, he actually used them as guinea pigs to show them how it works. So basically he just became increasingly capricious towards them in terms of what he expected from them. And he was you know, unpredictable in terms of when he gave quizzes, uh, when he gave homework, you know, just, and so he just united the class against him, right? So these different cliques within the classroom became unified against this, the, 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 you know, the evil teacher who was being so capricious and unfair. And at the end of the class, at the end of the year, he, he explained to them what he was doing and what he was trying to teach them. Mm. Um, and that again, we reflect back on on Ronald Reagan's speech that absolutely uh, sometimes what it takes to to end an argument is for a more overarching uh, issue to come online, right? To come into our awareness, and uh, you you could even argue you could play with the notion anyway that some of these intelligences that we're dealing with are aware of our conflict, our tribalism. And how dangerous it is, you know, like, I don't think our country has ever been so close to civil war since the civil war is now, um, Mm -hmm. that maybe that them showing up and maybe the ramping up that's even happening, which I I would argue from a a data driven point of view is, is seems to be taking place right now. There seems to be from what I'm, what I'm hearing from numerous sources, there's a ramping up going on and you, you could at least play with the notion that our current uh, economic, political, sociological divisions, when you tie that with, I mean, we've always been divided, but when you tie it to our capacity to, to destroy ourselves, you know, when, when you think you talked about the pandemic, whether it's a, an architected virus that gets released or nuclear bombs or whatever, you know, so many ways we could really, really destroy our civilization that um, maybe this is one way just by showing up just by making their presence known, which forces us to ask the question, who are they? What does this mean in terms of who we are? How does this impact the big questions? It changes the equation, maybe gets us to change the nature of our arguments. And we focus on something more overarching, like you say, that we can all agree with, because it's one of the very few topics, like you say, where there's, um, you know, agreement across the aisle, as they say. Mm-hmm. Well, how important is it that until we have better information, clearer information, and we can talk about, um, you know, kind of the avenues of information distribution or 
uh, validity? Um, how important is it in today's day where, where we don't yet have better data to all agree? You know, to me, it seems like uh, it's, it's healthy and maybe should be even encouraged that we, uh, you know, entertain, foster different perspectives uh, within the community of interest. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, it, it, it's healthy for us to take these different, uh, you know, have these different opinions. What I find to be unhealthy is the way in which those opinions are either expressed or wielded like weapons against those that have an, an, an alternate take. You know, so to me, if we're going to, and I guess, you know, this is a topic we could hit on as well. Like how important is it that we have a community that reflects a diversity of opinion? You know, so is that a value that we really should strive for? Or is it better that we just, uh, to use the word that you used a few minutes ago, kind of congregate in our little cliques of like-minded you know, thinkers and just kind of put up the walls and defend those walls against the, those who don't have, have our perspective, you know, maybe that that's what we should do. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe, you know, having a diverse uh, set of perspectives and allowing people to come to the table with those perspectives in a, in a respectful, healthy way, maybe that's not great. You know, maybe it's better that, you know, people just retreat to their, their corners of uh, UFO Twitter and, you know, kind of stay out of each other's lanes. I mean, that to me, that that's not, that doesn't, you know, ring true. It doesn't feel like that. That's the right way to go about it. It feels like we are, uh, we are made better by having that conversation, by listening, by reevaluating our positions, you know, on a regular basis. Uh, I often wonder the, those that are the most vocal, regardless of their perspective, who are, you know, basically kind of shouting back at each other, you know, what, what's really going on there? You know, what, what, what is really at stake in the situation? Because, uh, you know, to me, it sort of is a mask for some sort of underlying issue that, that isn't expressed. You know, it's, it's kind of a defense mechanism in a way. Um, maybe they've just invested, you know, so much time and energy in a particular perspective that to admit that they might be wrong is kind of an admission of defeat or uh, like a, a psychological break uh, because they're just not willing to, you know, to entertain that. So I don't know. I, I guess what I'm searching for here, here is, and I ask this a lot on, on the shows that I'm on is, you know, what are some models, what are some things we can look to, to help us, uh, you know, have this discussion in, in a way that, that is respectful of differing opinion and even encouraging of different opinion without it becoming inflamed. I don't know what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there are numerous ways that I would <clears throat> address that. One is when you think about the notion of a debate, that in itself suggests that, you know, two uh, opposite parties will argue back and forth and, and one of two options will come out on top, right? Like it, it assumes right away that there's a, a yes or a no, a black or white binary kind of truth that we can get to with a debate. So even the notion of a debate has underlying assumptions about the nature of truth or reality, right? Um, mm. Versus a dialogue or conversation, right? And um, 
you you brought up an interesting point that's worth uh, paying attention to, and that's you use the term psychological break. I think we do have to be um, sympathetic to people because for some people, they've already been through that. Like sometimes with an experience of the phenomenon or paranormality, um, they, you know, it, it literally not only changed their perspective on reality, but um, even your sense of personal agency, right, can be so violated. Um, not only do think things seem to supposedly have control over you, but you can't even get the mainstream to believe it's even happening. What, you know, how could you describe a more hopeless feeling, right? Where you have no agency whatsoever. And maybe the one thing you feel like you have left to do is convince everybody else that this is malevolent and nefarious and we got to wake up, right? And so you can understand if people are coming from that perspective, they have a lot of skin in the game, right? Uh, and I, I think we have to be not only sympathetic to that, but we have to listen closely. You know, like even if you tend either to them being mostly good or mostly bad, listen to the side who's making the counter argument. Like listen closely. Don't listen and go, I'm waiting for the thing that I can pick apart to prove that I'm right. Really mm-hmm. approach it with the uh, mentality that you want to learn something, right? And really ask yourself, am I here? Is my demeanor, is my intention here? to learn something or am I here to win, right? Um, so again, we've talked about this before in the show. A lot of this comes down to self-awareness, right? Being, being aware of how you enter into an equation, a conversation, a discussion, a forum. Um, what, what is it you're, you're hoping to gain from it? Um, some people would argue that while you and I kind of embrace this multi-perspectival view and say there's something we can all learn from each other and there's probably shreds of truth in multi, multiple perspectives, some people would say that in itself is kind of propaganda from a certain position. And it's true, right? Like we would acknowledge mm-hmm. that, that we all have to begin with some baselines about reality and how we should navigate the world. And ours happens to be that we have a more cosmopolitan kind of view where we believe that it it's helpful and we get further ahead by being exposed to different views. But not everyone agrees with that. Some people think that them. You know, for instance, like we've said many times before, those who are convinced that any of these entities that it seem to be interdimensional or not conventionally either human or animal, just by definition must be bad news. And to even talk about it, to even have the conversation is to give it more power. Um, in the same way that you talked about, you know, us merely being exposed to this and talking about it may create a kind of feedback loop that concretizes it and helps it manifest all the more in our reality. There are some people who are convinced of that to the negative, that mm-hmm. even having these conversations like is opening doors for nefarious things to come in and impact us more and more and more. And so the best thing, you know, the the, the kindest and most apt uh, response is to just shut down the conversation, which is the opposite of what we're saying, right? So we, in being multi-perspectival, have to acknowledge that, that that is a perspective that we at least need to consider and evaluate. Um, complex questions, um, not everyone will agree with us. We're saying this is what we, we hope people will, will lean towards. Uh, even for me, I'll expose myself a bit here and say that like, even politically, I consider myself post-progressive. So I'm looking for some sort of transcendent synthesis of viewpoints that transcend our current polarization that we have in our culture. 
Um, and I think that's very much possible. And again, that's partly my integral background. Um, but again, because people have skin in the game, because some people, especially in this field, you know, uh, recently saw someone who you probably saw it too, won't name them, but someone who had, you know, scarring on the back of their, their head because of what apparently was an uh, interaction with the UAP, you know, and, and when you see that, how it like changes someone's life, you know, like uh, in a way that's um, irreversible in many ways, you can understand that for someone like that, it's, it doesn't sit well when someone comes in without any experience with the phenomenon and has these really strong views. Uh, so there are many things to consider here. We have to be empathetic. I hope we'll, we'll be open-minded and I hope we actually, actually spend time like intentionally hearing opposite perspectives and giving them the time of day, like really evaluating it with an open mind. Mm-hmm. And history often is like the determiner of, you know, what was maybe appropriate at the time. Right. So it's, it is interesting, you know, to think about this from that vantage point, because you could argue that, you know, kind of holding things in suspension, like we, you know, are pretty good at doing, uh, may very well be, you know, from a historical perspective, like the wrong position to take, you know, historically, it could be better that we, you know, you know, we really fight, literally fight hard for a particular, uh, perspective. Um, and then by, you know, kind of playing the fence or whatever, that's it, just not really the, you know, the better outcome. Um, and I, you know, I, I do struggle with that. You know, I, I guess I also sort of think of it from a, from the standpoint of, at least this has helped me, particularly in relationships that uh, with you know with friends who maybe I have you know some kind of strong ideological disagreements with. It's helped me to look at this from that evolutionary perspective, that uh, like an evolutionary psychology in a way that that we're all wired uh, and maybe predisposed in certain ways. Uh, some are predisposed to be more kind of binary or uh, you know kind of have a strong sense of justice or a need for judgment. Some are, are predisposed to be a lot more ambiguous and open to, uh, you know, sort of ex- new experiences. Uh, our tolerance for new experiences may be a lot higher. You know, that that's kind of some, uh, it's, it's part of who we are. It's not necessarily something that we can cognitively change. Once we're aware of it, we, you know, can kind of modulate that some. But if, if we're not aware of it, which most of us aren't most of the time, uh, you know, those factors just sort of, you know, influence the way we move through the world. Uh, and, and there are times in our evolutionary history and our present in which those traits you know, contribute to our survival, not just as an individual in a certain situation, but, you know, potentially as a species. Um, and so that perspective for me, at least it allows me to tolerate uh, those that I find to be a little bit too intolerant, if that makes sense. Uh, Because I I kind of say, you know, that's not who I am. Uh, I I can't really get that worked up about X, Y, Z, but you know, I kind of understand why they are and maybe that that's okay. Maybe that is even correct, you know, but maybe other times those folks, you know, need to take a back seat to a more open 
to new experience view, uh, a more willingness to change view that I, that, you know, I might bring to the table. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's interesting to me kind of how all of this kind of plays together on, on a topic that is a, a little bit of a lightning rod. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you too, what's your intuition? Do you think that the others, and obviously we could be a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, sort of, uh, others that are out there, but what does your intuition say? Do you think that some or all of them have gone through this kind of same process in their own, you know, journey as a, as a species or as an entity or whatever? And, and if you think that, that that's true, you know, is there a trajectory to that? You have a sense that there might be a, a path there. Yeah. Good question. And I, I think this, um, what you're asking there points to, I think, one of the the constants that I lean towards, right? When we talked about, I mean, you can't wake up in the morning and put your socks on without some underlying beliefs about reality, right? And and even science has certain untestable assumptions of which upon of which it's built, right? Um, that's just the nature of any any hypothesis you put forward has to say, you know, give me these givens you know, these, these baselines. And from that, I'll, I'll try and construct a model of reality, right? That's what physics is. It tries to model reality. Um, but you get down to the, the root level and it has to begin with assuming this is the case, let's see if we could build something. Right. Um, and, and so again, touching on Donald Hoffman again, he says, I'm going to approach it differently. Give me consciousness, assume consciousness is primary. Then let me see if I can build everything else, matter, energy, space, time, and, and he believes he can, right? And um, so he's trying to look at it from that perspective, but he's not making any more leaps than someone who begins by saying, you know, matter and the material world is primary, right? Um, but to get to what you're asking there, yes, my, my tendency is to, uh, and this does shape how I see the phenomenon. And I, I had this perspective before I ever became interested in this topic. And again, it goes back to my integral background and the notion of spiral dynamics. And I've talked about this on point of convergence a few times, this notion that there does seem to be a directionality to evolution. And not just I'm not just talking about what our bodies evolve to look like and do, but I mean, even our consciousness seems to evolve to um, be interested, interested in ever expanding circles of inclusion and concern. So again, we've discussed before that you go from me-centric, and th this happens both for us as individuals, as we grow up and move through different levels of understanding, but also as collective cultures, we go through this as well. Uh, going from me to my family, to my tribe, to my nation state, to my species, to all sentient life on the planet, to all sentient life in the cosmos, and even maybe this notion that everything is actually ultimately a manifestation of one underlying substrate of consciousness. Therefore, everything's connected. So my self-interest now is directed towards everything, that what happens to Nathan at that level should impact me as much as what happens to me. So that literally changes my definition of self-interest. Um, and my perspective is, again, you can see, even with human uh, civilization, that cultures go through these predictable stages. Like you can, you can see it mapped out time and time again. Um, and so one of my underlying assumptions, because again, we all bring some of them to the table, is that this is, this is more like a, a, a universal constant that 
underlyingly, I do believe consciousness is is primary. Everything else sort of comes from that. Um, and because of that, uh, yes, these others, regardless of whether they're interdimensional or extraterrestrial or time travelers or shadow biome beings or whatever, they are also part of that consciousness because literally everything is part of that consciousness. Uh, so I, I do believe that um, that kind of trajectory holds true across the board. That said, I also acknowledge that there are different kinds of intelligence, different kinds of sophistication. And just like you can get a new age guru who might really, really, really understand meditation and be able to get to subtle reality to an amazing degree and even teach it to others who might be just a jerk, you know, just not have good social skills, might be a complete narcissist. Some people think, how can one, you know, how can both of those exist in one person? Because it's a different kind of intelligence and you can uh, excel in one and, and sometimes almost like as a consequence, really be stunted in another. Um, so again, this is where self-awareness and shadow work helps uh, to sort of round out, not only increasing your strengths, but also working on your weaknesses. So yes, my, my notion, and I'm glad you brought this up because um, we talked about this before we went on the air. And that is that for me, even when people draw these hard distinctions between are these physical beings or are they spiritual? So for me, I've always um, tended towards this notion. This this even goes back to science fiction. I've, writ I've written in the past and read in the past as well, where my notion is as that circle of inclusion you know, increasingly gets larger and larger, and not only that, but your ability to manipulate reality gets larger and larger because you become more, not only can you manipulate physical reality like we can really well now. But on top of that, when you get to a level where you now perceive reality on a consciousness level so that you can manipulate it energetically without ever having to get to the point where you just now work with dead matter, then at that point, you might evolve into a kind of hyperspace or a hyperdimensional reality where you maybe are post-biological, right? But at this, at the whole, the, the whole time this is happening, uh, you are recognizing that everything is connected. Um, mm -hmm. And as such, you now have become a being who exists mostly as a light being who's post-biological and yet is connected not only to everything, but also is very, very in tune with this central cosmic intelligence. Because again, that's one of my assumptions. I think there's strong evidence for the fact that there is a, a an underlying cosmic intelligence behind everything. Um, some people want to use the term God for that. For some people, that's just too loaded a term with religious baggage and whatnot. So use your term of choice. But as they become in tune with all those things and grow in all those capacities, to me, they then may, out of their own sense of much larger self-interest, act on behalf of the will of this cosmic intelligence. And when you think about it, that looks an awful lot like what we would call an angel. Right, it's a it's a light being. It's post biological. It's in tune with the cosmic intelligence. Its will is aligned with the cosmic intelligence because it's evolved to that degree, and yet it's still part of the evolutionary process of our cosmos. So that's where, for me, I feel like those those dis, those hard distinctions collapse, and other possibilities that are more interesting to me uh, come online. Mm -hmm. Well, what are the uh, attributes of? Uh of that consciousness at large. I guess I do struggle with that aspect because, you know, is it, um, 
is it as if uh, in this sort of conscious evolution that there's a there's a kind of trigger point or a, a line that gets crossed in that journey to where uh as you kind of point out that this greater alignment occurs and behaviorally these entities uh you know are almost like more consistent or homogenous with each other um or is it that just as we are uh, you know diverse at our sort of level of conscious development in our behavior uh, that 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 too exists at these higher levels, uh, but I guess in what ways? I, and so, I, and what I'm also trying to get at here is, you know, what what at the base level are the are the kind of core attributes of consciousness at large? Is it the is is the is the sort of uh, value the underlying value to optimize for experience? you know, sort of generally any experience or is it, uh, you know, certain kinds of experience are, uh, you know, valued greater to a greater degree uh, over other types of experience. You know, are we, are we trending towards, uh, you know, sort of, um, kind of peaceful experience or the maximization of, 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 of peaceful interaction amongst conscious entities? Is that, you know, a desired uh, sort of trajectory, or is the trajectory a, a coexistence of uh, a diversity of uh, of conscious experience? You know, so I, I guess I do struggle with that because there are, you know, in my own background with you know with faith and, and Christianity, this notion uh, that you know is one sort of uh, expression of Christian theology of you know, kind of heaven where everything is a lot, you know, essentially like homogenous with the will of God, you know, everyone's singing from the same hymn book, you know, essentially that to me doesn't sound all that exciting, you know, other than, you know, you might get some, some banging music out of it, but like, you know, we don't have a lot of, uh, you know, where, where are the things that from my perspective, at least bring, uh, you know, levels of enjoyment and value and, and excitement that, that derive from our differences and our disagreements. So th this is sort of, in many ways, an argument for the value of di disagreement, you know, that, that it creates these friction points that, that give rise to, you know, novel experience, new ideas, uh, you know, and these are things in and of themselves that are important to not only our, our lived experience, how we value the life that we have, but also our journey, you know, our, our conscious journey, period. You know, they, they add to our experience. They, they add and, and elevate that. So I don't know. I, I know I've said quite a lot there, but I mean, what, what's your take on that? Is it, is, is it really going to be uh, you know, sort of unidirectional, or is it omnidirectional in terms of, uh, of of what types of experiences are made manifest, you know, across the spectrum? Right. I mean, I think my <clears throat> the the answer is yes and yes. Next question. No, I'm just joking. Um, 
<laughs> what I mean by that is, yes, I agree with you that both of those things are valuable. And, and like we talked earlier about um, trying to defend the marginalized while also maximizing for, for free speech is a challenging equation, you know, and, and we want to value both and, and recognize that there's challenges either way. So what I would say is that, you know, uh, you know that I'm a fan of Bernardo Castrop's work and he, he's talked about initially when you had this kind of cosmic intelligence, which was one intelligence, right? And that was everything. And then through a, pro a kind of process of disassociation, you have it breaking off into little units, subunits, mm -hmm. where that created this sense of I-ness that was now disconnected from the totality, right? And that not only us as a species, but as us, us as individuals is a tiny, you know, atomic structure representing a break off from that cosmic intelligence. And you could ask, well, why is that useful? Why would that even happen? And I would argue it's for the very reason you pointed to this, this sense of it gives rise to creativity and novel experience and novel interpretation. And, um, that while you have a nice clean picture when you have one intelligence that agrees with itself, it's not very dynamic and there's nowhere to grow. So through this process mm -hmm. of a disassociation um, through species and individuals, there is this climbing back up the ladder then of having new experiences, novel experiences, creativity burgeoning in the cosmos, but also as part of that evolutionary process of consciousness itself, sort of regaining the memory that, wait a second, I'm from this thing. I broke off from this thing. And, that, and that's sort of like the, a non-dual perspective in terms of spirituality is that you recognize that you're ultimately connected to everything. So it's kind of this beautiful experiment where you do value novel experience. You do value different perspectives. But while that happens and it gets more colorful, picture like a cuisine where you've got a menu with all these different you know, menu options from around the world, who would want only Mexican food or only, you know, fish and chips in the UK or something? I mean, um, mm -hmm. or borscht, you know, in, in Russia or whatever. I mean, you want all of that, right? That's when it gets really colorful and, and, and just erupting with flavor and diversity, right? That, that we value. And so, but as that continues to march up, ideally, you don't crush out the complexity. You don't crush out the differences. You value the differences. You have this much more robust, complex, interesting, multifaceted perspective that you bring all of that novelty while also moving to this remembrance that somehow it's all connected. So that's the ideal, I think, is that you go through that process of dis disassociation, you get novel experience, novel perspectives, but eventually you also find this kind of unifying um, march towards interconnectivity. Um, and, and that mm -hmm. seems like, in a nutshell, what I would say is, is the cosmic dance that we're a part of. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, very helpful. I think um, I wanted to come back to, as we kind of turn our attention toward the, the back end of the show, uh, I wanted to come back to something that we touched on earlier and that we've talked about uh, in, in other conversations, but, you know, that is this notion of, uh, of how we arrive uh, at a consensus, um, you know, sort of generally, you know, we, we could argue, let's put a hypothetical, you know, eventually, let's say sometime in the next few years, 
we get uh, you know a clear governmental uh, statement, uh, something that's unambiguous. You know that we're not alone. Uh, that uh, here we have some some craft we've been working on, and you know we think there's some species. We know at least of three. You know, just something that's more concrete than we have now. Um, what are the ways that you foresee uh, our uh, sort of society and our, our 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 discourse arriving at a kind of consensus that that can kind of digest that information and say yeah that that the, I also agree that that is what is happening um, I, you know I find it interesting that we we have hot takes on everything uh, and even from those who are the the most credentialed people in our societies, you know, saying certain things you know, to us, uh, we are pretty quick to, uh, you know, second guess that judgment and, uh, and, and substitute a totally different narrative, you know, even though we don't have the kind of experience that they have. So, you know, how do you see that playing out? Do you, do you think there's going to be a very kind of public debate about this, that eventually we will kind of work our way toward a consensus or, or will we kind of maybe forever be divided in some ways on what it really is? Right. I think the, the interesting question within that question for me is how much disclosure can you get without opening up more questions than you answered? Right. And mm -hmm. uh, if we could just, I've used this you know, analogy of a cherry on top of you know, a cake or something. That always feels good, right? When you've got like 90% of a picture and then, ah, there we go, you know, perfecto. It's uh, now it's now it's fully complete. And and we've talked about this before, yeah. you know, kind of laughingly uh, at the end of the 19th century, you know, the scientific revolution was fully in gear and people would literally say things like we're 99% there and under understanding reality. Now it's just fine tuning. And then the quantum world erupted upon uh, our psychic scapes. And everything was undone, right? And and everything we thought we knew, we didn't we didn't know anymore. And I think to many to a great degree, we're still wrestling with that implication. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny how you'll hear different people making again really strong arguments one way or the other. So I, I remember even recently, you know, reviewing some of um, Colonel Corso's work. Um, around Roswell and and his frustration, you know that this wasn't being shared with the people, right? That and he he would mm -hmm. like you know in indignation say the young people can handle it, you know. Like mm -hmm. I I I fought with nineteen year olds and they they fought the best you know nations in the world, the best armies in the world, and they they rose to the challenge. Why do our secret keepers believe that we can't handle it, right? And it's the, the whole Jack Nicholson thing. You can't handle the truth, right? Mm -hmm. I know better, so I'm going to withhold it from you. So on the one hand, you hear, again, we're going to argue from new, for nuance here. On the one hand, you hear some people who say, um, we're mature, we can handle this, right? First problem with that is that it assumes there's a one us, right? Like, as if we are one human civilization, pretty much all have the same perspective. And we've already shown evidence that we can handle novel information uh, in a healthy way and, and sort of bring it into our worldview and spend a little time digesting. And then we move on as if there's no problem. But of course, that's not the nature of the world. And I, I actually think that's a naive perspective when people argue for that, because 
Um, as we've talked about before in this show, and I've talked on POC about, uh, you know, there's a reason why people say, for instance, when the Allies went to war sort of with, or at least a Cold War or a kind of silent war against, you know, Middle Eastern Islamic fundamentalism, they would call that a clash of civilizations, right? And in that mm-hmm. expression itself, it, it demonstrates that you can have more than one civilization on the same planet at the same time. And we absolutely do. We have multiple ones. As I pointed out before, there are three main worldviews just within the United States, you know, where people hold to very different notions of reality. So what it means, the implications will be interpreted differently, digested, internalized differently, depending on which worldview you hold to. Um, And I don't know that um, if you say, well, it turns out these ones exist, we know they exist. And just, you know, they happen to be popping in from a a parallel reality. Mm -hmm. That, that, you know, (laughs) that says, what, what, wait, there's other realities. What are you saying? What does that mean for me? And are you saying there's another version of me, like, you know, a million times over? And if I just don't like this life, should I just shut it down? Because maybe I'm better over there. I mean, it opens up so many questions, right? So again, if it's just ET, then that's somewhat simpler, right? Because it fits within our current paradigm, uh, kind of our materialist space-time construct where we say, turns out, sure enough, you know, Alpha Centauri has this one system of three planets that are like highly evolved and they've, they've come here and they've been here for a long time. And in fact, they've been managing our evolution. We go, okay, that, that fits with our current paradigm of science and, and exploration. It feels very Star Trek-y, right? But mm-hmm. I'm pretty convinced the answer is much more complex than that. And of course, people like Jacques Vallée and John Keel came to that conclusion decades ago. And to many degree, to, to a great degree, the world is still catching up to them based on the evidence they saw. Not because that was their preferred hypothesis. They actually began believing the ET hypothesis was probably most likely because of that was the cultural milieu they grew up in, just like us. But they, the data convinced them otherwise, that it's much more complex than that. So for me, it answering one question in the affirmative opens up many, many troubling questions. People, the questions that people will perceive as troubling. It's a Pandora's box, right? If you say it turns out there are others here, and they don't fit with our current model of what constitutes reality. I mean, uh, is that going to be chaos? Is that going to be, you know, create a, a class of civilizations because one side, just like we talk about UFO Twitter, right? One side's convinced they're demonic. Another side believes it's their love and light. Another side believes they're kind of symbiotic ETs or interdimensionals. It's one thing when you have arguments on Twitter, when you have entire societies rallying around one perspective based on this new revelation, then they might very well feel that they're justified in going to war with each other because they're so convinced of their notion. And that this is, uh, if this is the end times, this is, if this is the, you know, the rise of the Antichrist, and I'm justified in going to war with this other nation who doesn't see that, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that's a right perspective. I'm saying some people will come to that conclusion. So mm-hmm. tricky days ahead. For sure. I mean, it, it's, it's, but I guess you could argue that we are already in such tricky times with our tribalism and, and our capacity to, to destroy ourselves in many, many different ways and how our technology has eclipsed our consciousness 
the sort of center of consciousness by such a degree that you almost could ask, is that instability that would inevitably come with these revelations actually potentially plant the seeds for something unifying that's actually better than what we have now? And is that maybe even the calculus that these others have taken into consideration? And that's why they're you know ramping up their presence. And then you think about Jacques Vallée's control system hypothesis and them doing just enough to manage our evolution and that you shouldn't take anything at face value because it's more like a lever that's meant to shift our direction just enough to keep us alive and uh, help to evolve our consciousness for the long term. So that was a very complex question, uh, answer to your question. Sorry. No, it's great. And you went exactly where I was about to go. And that is at each sort of epoch that we have been through on this planet, there are revelatory time periods that essentially lead to an apocalypse. You know, the, the, the end of a way of, of experiencing, of knowing, of being arrives and a new way is born. You know, that, that there are some truths, there are some uh, revelatory, uh, you know, experiences that are so profound, you know, so dynamic that they they are they literally end the civilization, and and that is I think you know we often interpret that very flatly as like ah you know everybody's wiped out and they're gone, but it, it's it's much more metaphorical you know like you can't go home again you know, um, once you arrive at that place you 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 have only one option and that's to go forward into a new future that is completely foreign to you. Uh, and it could very well be that that's, you know, that we are on the precipice of that, whether, you know, it, it strikes me whether th that is, uh, you know, sort of um, precipitated by the uh, arrival of the others or disclosure, or whether it comes about through something of our own design. You know, I, I was reminded recently, um, listening to an episode of uh, the Lex Fridman podcast where he was talking with someone about artificial intelligence and just, you know, I think it was, um, Oh, actually, I'm sorry. It was Sam Harris talking with Eric Schmidt, about artificial intelligence and, uh, just the degree to which we're already interacting with, uh, you know, sort of, uh, a type of intelligence, not quite, you know, what we would call conscious, uh, but it, it's doing things and, and it will be capable of doing things that, that we really don't understand, you know, like we, we the algorithms and the, and the complexity of these systems are such that no one person really understands exactly how it's doing, whatever it's doing. Um, but it will dramatically change the way that we interact with our world on an individual and societal level. So we're, we're at a time period in history where one way or the other, you know, it is not going to be the same as it has been in the past. And the future is going to get pretty weird, I think, pretty fast. Um, and so, you know, to sort of look at this from the perspective of, um, you know, navigating that and, and holding, you know, holding strong convictions and opinions, you know, I think we're all going to be in a position where the things that we have held on to as being, the, the kind of the beliefs that are the rocks for, you know, that, that our houses, our foundations are built on, that those are all going to be challenged. You know, so we really are going to have to, I think, prepare ourselves mentally 
for this arrival. Uh, and, and, you know, and you can't just like, you can't be prepared for the birth of your first child. Uh, you can't be prepared for this, but you can, you know, do a few things to try and be prepared. You know, you, you can get a little caught up. You can, you know, pair the nursery, you know, you can get some clothes, you know, you can do the, the kinds of things that, that, that makes sense to do. And when we can kind of see it on the horizon, there are some things we can do right now. I think that makes sense. Uh, and, and hopefully we're paying attention enough to, to do that, uh, in a way that helps us navigate this transition, uh, in a, in a safe and healthy way as possible, because we don't, you know, we don't live on an Island. You know, we do, we do, uh, rub shoulders and, you know, bump elbows all the time. So how do we, you know, kind of arrive at that point and, and, and cross that boundary without, you know, completely annihilating each other. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons why, you know, that ever expanding circle of inclusion and concern that I mentioned earlier arises is not just because, you know, you just become more caring, but just as, you know, kind of a calculated understanding, you realize, for instance, with global warming and whatnot and climate, that what happens in one part of the world has direct effect on what happens somewhere else. And that you realize the only way we can solve a problem like that is by coming together and agreeing. And while some people will rally against the idea of globalism and, you know, as some sort of control structure meant to take away our individual freedoms, and I understand some of the concerns there, right? Again, I see validity on all sides. Usually I can see some validity in, in the different points of view. But at the same time, if we just isolate and say each group gets to do what they want and what they think's right, you know, we may, you know, not have much of a planet left to, uh, to live within, not to mention the responsibility we have for all the anim animal species uh, and whatnot, the rest of the biosphere. Another thing that occurs to me too is that sometimes or often we're very comfortable saying change needs to happen, right? We, we need to move towards something that's like vastly different than it is now. It's not just a fine tuning. We need to completely revamp how we do civilization, right? Hmm. Many people are willing to say that. A much smaller group of people are willing to be the pioneers in those difficult transition times where you have to begin from the ground up. You have to strip down everything mm -hmm. you have had. We in the West have become you know, very comfortable with our material goods, our comfort. Um, we have certain expectations of how comfortable our life will be and a certain kind of repetition of our... Uh, you know, our schedule and how much are we willing to have that impacted directly us and our children and our grandchildren in order to potentially build something new. Um, that's, that's part of this whole question around how far along really are we in terms of a, um, a non-dual kind of perspective? Can we be willing to be the first pioneers, you know, moving on to the, the, the fresh territory where it's just really hard work and it's grunt work, maybe for your entire life, you know, before you build up something new and that kind of calculation, you see it happening all the time in our culture. When we have politicians that are elected for four year terms, then usually what they're most concerned with is what they can convince you they can do in one, two, three years. And then they're already thinking about the next election cycle, right? So um, the nature of reality doesn't run on four-year cycles, but our political system currently does. Um, 
but how much of that are we willing to revamp and go through the the complexity and the chaos of that revamping where you tear down a structure before you build something new? That's a question I think we all have to ask ourselves. Um, and it's something that involves sacrifice, you know, personal sacrifice as well as collective sacrifice. And, and maybe that's even what some of these others, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's partly what they're saying is trying to point out our hypocrisy and, uh, the small way we live our lives. Um, and like I said, with that political science teacher or the sociology teacher earlier, again, by them showing up, that in itself makes us ask new questions. It makes us see ourselves differently, it makes us see ourselves as human beings rather than Republicans or Democrats or, you know, North Americans or Africans or whatever. Um, yeah, big questions. And I, and I, I, I really encourage all of us to think hard about how much we would be willing to sacrifice to solve some of the problems that exist. Because if we only opt for options that supposedly bring about solutions without changing any of the current dynamics in any major way, I'm reminded of what Einstein said, where he said, you can never solve a current problem from the same level of consciousness that developed it in the first place. I think that that applies here as well. Mm. so well said, you know, this reminds me of just relationships and how, you know, as you pointed out, what are you willing to, to sacrifice? What are you willing to do to repair the breach, you know, to, to break new ground? Um, and, and I, you know, I see the parallels directly with, uh, the, the, the this top, this topic of conversation, you know, the, the notion of disagreement, you know, what are you willing, how vulnerable are you willing to be? to come to a new place, uh, a new understanding, you know, so d- disagreements are, I think, healthy. They're very good. They, uh, often, you know, spark, um, you know, new insights. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think, a, a healthy community does have space and has made space for people to express d- different opinions, but we do also need to encourage this notion of, of growth and sacrifice and vulnerability because that is a catalyst for change. And, you know, I, I have this mental image of not only the pioneers amongst us who may have to, you know, make these sacrifices uh, in this new reality, but, but those from, from the other side, you know, who may have to make their own sacrifices to kind of reach out and, and bring us along. Uh, so, you know, this is very much, I would hope at least, is a, a two-way street here, that it is highly relational, that just as we are willing to be changed, they are willing to be changed uh, in service of something uh, more. Of, of a new way of understanding, a new way of being. Uh, that is the, not only kind of the transformative quality of genuine relationship, but it's the transformative power of what this represents. Uh, this is a, the, the dawn of a new way of being in the world. And it impacts us on an individual, a familial, a societal, a global you know, level. Um, and, and it's exciting, you know, you know, again, what, whether it happens uh, tomorrow uh, or a decade or, you know, in, in future lifetimes, I, I think we would, you know, agree that, you know, it, it's going to happen on, on some level that uh, eventually this barrier will break 
and uh, that new that new world will arrive. Well said. That's a great note to finish on. Yeah. With that said, so uh, we again really appreciate uh, all of our listeners. Uh, I can't thank all of you enough for uh, the, the times that you've shared the the show and mentioned it to others. Uh, the, the times that you've made a comment or. Uh, responded uh, on Twitter or on YouTube or even on Reddit. Uh, saw some uh, some posts there. So a shout out to all the folks that have given our our, our show uh, a chance and are following along. Um, I can say personally that this has been an incredibly meaningful uh, journey for me uh, to have these conversations um, with you, EXO, and with this community. And uh, we look forward to seeing where it will go. Uh, we do think that there's a lot of a lot of ground left to cover here, a lot of uh, discovery left to be had. Um, and with that said, as we close, may the quality of our questions, shaped by a desire for understanding, enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you all next time on Liminal Frames.